This is in residence conversations from Town Hall. At Town Hall, one of the historic theaters that has been preserved in the city, part of the historic theater district, one of the success stories of Allied Arts. R.M. Campbell has written Stirring Up Seattle, Allied Arts in the Civic Landscape. R.M. Campbell, a longtime dance critic and critic for the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. And also with us is Mary Coney, who was a UW professor and past president of Allied Arts to talk about this book. So I'm glad you both are here. And let's, let's start with that. Let's, this is a legacy of Allied Arts and the efforts of the people involved in Allied Arts. How did a group that started out as a beer and culture society come to be interested in preserving the theaters, so the Paramount, the Town Hall, Moore, Fifth Avenue, and Act? Right. How did that, how did that come about, just by way of one story? Oh, it's a huge story. I mean, it's a long, long story. They tried to save various theaters, and they were more successful with some than others. They saved the Paramount and the Fifth Avenue. Uh, Act wasn't really so much of a theater. It was something else. But anyway, those were the two big theaters. But all the others went under the gun, under the blanket. Music Hall Theater, which was on Seventh Avenue, which had this sort of spectacular front, but a very, very, very difficult interior. They didn't save that. I think uh, Margaret Page, who was a former president, city council person, some people might still know, uh, she thinks that the time was wrong and that if it had been done today, there's so much activity in that part of the city, people would have found something to do with it, but then they didn't. So uh, they worked to get a historic preservation so they could all get together and preserve themselves. ACT was probably the greatest accomplishment of that group. And this is late 80s. This is late, well. Success is late 80s. Late 80s and 90s, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Paramount was the 80s because they were thinking of the, of the Symphony Hall. And that got turned down by the Symphony completely. And, uh, and then the Fifth Avenue really was a group of private citizens who got together. A lot of, you know, very successful businessmen who got their money together and got everything together in the ordinance, and so they turned this kind of fading theater into a glorious theater, really. When, I, yeah. when I was reading this book, it seemed like that was, this was uh, towards the end of Allied Arts' yes, uh, it was successful the, efforts. Right. It was toward the end of it, really. I can't remember, yeah, so I, I And a, a great legacy for it's it to a, go out on. It's a great legacy. I mean, the whole, the whole movement to save historic theaters. Because at one time, I actually added them all up. In Seattle, we had 20 theaters. Yeah, I saw that I mean, the, the Coliseum was one. And of course, they, we, still have the, we still have the facade, which is a wonderful facade. There's a great photograph in the book, of, talking by Roger Schreiber, of sort of taken from a back. You just see that sort of that opening arch, and it's so beautiful, the thought of that going. Well, I remember going to one of the last films being shown there, thinking, oh, this is terrible. This beautiful facade is so nice. I don't want this to go away. But, of course, you go into the theater, and it was run down and popcorn stain and gum. And you thought, oh, man, they're going to tear this down. It's not that great a theater. But so who were people? Why were there people who would get involved in uh, an effort like this in the city? Who were these people? You were part of it, Mary. So Well, I came in in about late. 1969, I think. So I I had come from the Midwest, like lots of people in Allied Arts, um, who had come from cities that they thought had had, uh, been ruined. Lots of them had been emptied out. I remember I once went to Des Moines, Iowa, and um, 
most of the city was other places at mm. night. No one was there, and there were all these walkways on the second floor going from one building to another. There was, no, there was nothing downtown. So a lot of the motivation, I think, of people uh, was to make sure that Seattle didn't ruin further what they already had and to try and keep it and make it better. Um, and mainly, I think, it was kind of one person pulled another person in. There wasn't really any, like, membership drive. I can't ever remember us doing anything like that. We never ran our organization in a very... Um, organized manner. Organized way. That was not where we put our energy. <laughs> no, that's what, I, we that's what I read. We, we didn't care about that. You I guys mean, were fairly radical in that we, sense. We would. We did We did feed... And agnostic we, on those Yes, issues. we didn't feed the organization at all. idiosyncratic. <laughs> Quir quirky, that's what quirky, Alice Rooney quirky. had called us. Yes. No, we didn't care about that. So we, we kept the organization just... Uh, enough organized just to keep us going, but not we didn't spend any time on that. So how does it start as a beer and culture society? Just give us that history. What was who? What year was this? And what were the who were those Mid -50s, people? Mid fifties, fifty four, fifty five, and uh, just a group of people, uh, two of whom nobody would know anymore. John Detley was one, and John Stewart uh, Ashby, John Ashby Conway. He taught at the University of Washington. They were two. They were the two of the leading people, and then all sorts of other architects, professors, sort of what you could call, they like to always consider themselves anti-establishment. What they really were were upper middle class professional people. And would you not agree? That's, yes. yeah, that's yeah. basically who they were. And so uh, they just sort of they had these informal meetings and it developed from there. I think I've heard this from a variety of people who have come here is that one of the things they loved about the city was that there was a potential for people who were not multimillionaires to do something. Uh, and there was a, there was, the city was open. Anybody who could do something was welcome. Yes. And I think that wasn't true in a lot of other cities, especially in the East Coast. And the things that, that Allied Arts chose to do were things that were fundamental to this city. So one of the, th the story, one story I did know was how important Allied Arts was and the people that were involved in Allied Arts to saving the Pike Street Market, yeah, Pike Place Market. But what I didn't know that they were so critical to something like uh, the billboards and the way the, our highways look, or to burying the utility lines all through downtown. Right, no, that's completely forgotten for the most part. Why was that something that mattered to them? In your research, the people well, you talked to. Well, I think if you take a look at the old pictures of the city, first of all, there were two power companies, and so they had. Uh, this is for wiring. And they were, they were just, they were everywhere. And the billboards were on both sides. So the so cities were incredibly ugly. And, you know, I think most people in Seattle had just gotten used to it. And they finally said, we need to do something about it. But it was a struggle. I mean, the billboards, I mean, first of all, the power had to deal with city light. And they were completely resistant to any change whatsoever. I don't know why. They were making a lot of money, but they were resistant. And the second thing was uh, billboards and the billboard lobby in Olympia particularly. I mean, they just were, I mean, all those, all they had rich, not rich, I should let me rephrase that. They had professional people to do their bidding. So, and, and they had allied arts. We had garden ladies. Who else was part of that campaign? Well, and you had, you had garden ladies in part because you had, uh, part of the impetus for this from the story you tell, but I don't know if either of you can tell it, was uh, looking out the window and seeing trees being cut. That was tied. my yeah, story, was, yeah. 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 I happen to live in an old in historic district now, the first historic district, I think still the only residential the only one, one yeah. uh, the Harvard Highland District or Belmont District. Right. And uh, I happened to be at my kitchen window and looked up the street, up East Prospect, and saw that City Light was just 
grinding down these big old trees. And so I ran outside and you know, acted hysterical. I'm not that kind of person, but I tried to act that way. And then ran inside and, and called uh, my husband, who was a lawyer. And I said, we've got to stop this right away. So he immediately issued a stop work order. Well, he got one issued by a judge. One, and got one issued by a judge, absolutely. And so within half an hour, 45 minutes, it stopped. And the crews just sat around. And then we, um, as I recall, we, we, in the process of sued City Light to stop this, what they called a five-year clearance. Now, you can imagine what that really meant, is going this way. And uh, as far as they were concerned, and one of them said at one point, you know, a tree in the wrong, wrong place is a weed. I mean, that was really attitude. It was between wires and trees. They had no problem choosing wires. So um, we, and here's, the, I think this is an important thing that's germane to your earlier question, is that if I had not happened to belong to Allied Arts, what would I have done, you know? So we would have stopped and we would have had to bring privately a lawsuit or something. But as soon as I went to the next meeting or whole, held a meeting, um, everyone, you know, you say, well, we've got this problem, we've got to do something about this. And even though people may not have known about the problem with street trees and clearance, people listened and they rallied. And I think that was one of the interesting characteristics of the group, is they tended to, not in a lemming-like fashion, but uh, they joined each other. They respected each other's, someone's position enough that they said, yeah, we got to do something about this. And That's so, interesting. And so you had an immediate um, interest group who could then start calling the mayor and calling, you know, whoever it would be. And, um, uh, and uh, interestingly enough, wielded a tremendous amount of influence without really having that much money to do that with. Well, you, t you tell the, go ahead. So I was just going to say there was a shift. When Allied Arts began, they had all these standing committees. That sort of disappeared and segued into ad hoc committees so they could respond to something like this. Oh, the, we, can't, we can't stop the, uh, we have to stop the cutting down of trees, getting rid of billboards, all these things that would come up. And they were flexible. And when that, whenever it was done, it was done, and then they can move on to something else. Um, it's interesting. Well, one of the successes you had was then City Light hires an arborist. You have yeah, this right, whole other right. culture that arises right. that is now taken hold That's in right. a lot of the institutions right. in the yes. city about caring for the urban environment. I think there are a lot of things that we take for granted now, uh, and uh, they didn't take for granted then, in part because of all that effort to get these things sort of ingrained into the civic consciousness. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's really interesting. I mean, for example, you know, now the city is scattered all over the city with sidewalk cafes. People could drink and eat and do that wasn't that was illegal in the fifties. They couldn't sit down on a chair. It was you couldn't do it. And Allied Arts pushed. And it Allied Arts was really pushing. Got it through the city council. So you had a lot of uh, personalities in Allied Arts, individuals. Um, uh, Victor Steinbrook, you have all these other um, uh, architects and builders and, and people involved in things. What keeps their egos from rising to the fore in an organization like this? What kept it from from becoming ego-driven and a one person, project different? Yeah. You know, one person yeah. organization. Well, uh, there were lots of egos, so uh, that helped. Uh, there was, <laughs> uh, there were that, but it was also done, I think, with a sense of camaraderie. I, um, and looking back when I was, we were working on this book, I thought that that was really the, the kind of a key is that there was a sense of, you know, all for one, one for all kind of thing. Kind of corny, but it, in fact, 
was really well, the spirit shared of the values time. too, right? Absolutely. Shared shared value. Value. Absolutely. Paul Shell said something about you can get more accomplished when everyone isn't pushing to be in the limelight. And yes. that's how he felt about allies for whatever yes. reason. Yes. I thought it was interesting that you had uh, uh, Paul Shell and. Uh, um, well, I guess what, was a Solomon a member later? But you had Paul no, Shell. No, he was he never. Was so you had Paul Shell and you had Dixie Lee Ray in, in, <laughs> in the Kenny Mansion. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's well, that was a list that went on forever, including strange everybody in the sun. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's a remarkable thing. That, but it wasn't. <laughs> I don't think Dixie was involved for too long. It really wasn't her type of group. <laughs> little too, little too rambunctious. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit too rambunctious. Yeah. It's too liberal, I'm sure, from her standpoint. Yeah, so, a lot of people came in quickly. Because it was kind of the place to be, or the, and then they realized it wasn't for them, and they, especially people who had business interests, and um, maybe you picked up the anecdote about John Hauberg and Ann Hauberg, and how Ann was plumping for something with to do with Allied Arts, and, and he kind of the Pike Place, the, the Pike saving Park, saving place, big Park, and he kind of if she continued. She would never be able to do anything so in her own manner. What she did is she stopped being so vocal, but she did everything underground. So let's talk about that Pike Place Market fight, because people do see the manifestation of that and Pioneer Square, which I'll get to. But that Pike Place Market fight was a pretty interesting fight because you were up against not just the establishment, but the, a, a cultural notion that said the reason cities are hollowed out and, and emptying is because uh, nobody wants to live in cities and let's get rid of them. What, what was the, from your talking to people, what was uh, our understanding? What was the difference in their understanding? Steinbrook, I guess, is your main example yeah. of, why, of why this, as you, keep, you kept saying in the book, R.M. Campbell, you kept saying, you know, you had to look pretty, pretty deep beneath the dirt and grime oh, to see the value. Of course, I don't remember. I was too young, but I, I'm sure I've seen pictures of it. It was just terrible looking. I can see why they said to get rid of it. Uh, but this little group, led by Victor Steinbrook, uh, just kept on going at it. And to, we would accept no, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but he would accept no compromise. And then finally they basically came up with the initiative. All these, God knows how many housewives and how many people were involved ringing doorbells. It was, a, it was really a, like a political campaign. I think about that in terms of a Tim Iman, right? Because yeah. there are not many people on, in the Victor Steinbrook political mold that don't accept compromise in the modern day. Right, I mean, this is right. Barack Obama's right. whole critique now, yeah. whereas yeah. Steinbrook was willing to go to the mat for, this is my vision and I'm not letting go. He was. He was amazing. Um, you know, uh, I re when I was president, as a matter of fact, I was sitting in my office at the university. Um, I'm a young professor, and he called me one day, just on the phone, and read me up and down about something I hadn't done or had done or hadn't done right and, you know, just really let me have it by the side of the head. I didn't take it. I was a little shocked by it, but I, I didn't. That was just victory. He said, and, and he was probably right, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, he'd keep people focused and on track, and he didn't mind who he said it to. I mean, it's amazing his willingness to... Uh, dig his teeth in and, and hold on and keep the pressure on. And very few people are willing to do that. And certainly I think today the culture works against that kind of single man, single person kind of thing. It really do. does. You yeah. know, it, it's interesting. I was looking at the book yesterday and uh, rereading re the chapter on Victor. And he died in 1985. It's interesting because in some ways when the group 
of us and Allardyce who wanted Richard to do the book and pointed him toward the material that we thought was going to be most productive. It really started in 1955 and ended in 1985. Now, it went on somewhat. We were just talking about the theaters, yeah. but certainly it's interesting. And yet, lots of things we did weren't, Victor didn't lead, but it was a little bit um, eerie almost to realize mm. that um, he... There was, I, I wasn't involved so much in this, but we have these wonderful cuts from Peggy Goldberg. They're scattered all the way throughout the book and I think makes the book so visually interesting. And they struggled, correct me if I'm wrong, they struggled with what to do with Victor because they were supposed to be somewhat relevant to the character. It's a hand with the finger pointed like that. Perfect Victor. You know, um, and he made a lot of enemies. In the pro- not everybody liked Victor. No, I, <laughs> I saw that in the book. Yeah. And some people still were are still holding grudges. But he made a he made a pretty prescient uh, a statement about the market and what was going to happen to the market. And he was right. It is boutique-y, but it is also its characters there and how it evolves is still going to be organic. And oh, I think yeah, that's I mean, a remarkable thing. It has changed. I mean, he was adamant that they have no upscale housing there. Well, that is what has happened. And obviously, the food thing is a little bit less because that's where the money is. Uh, but his basic vision has remained. You know, I, and survived I to, after millions of dollars of federal money, thanks to Senator Magnuson. Yeah, really. I, I happened here on KUOW interview David O'Neill, who's a market consultant, and he was here. Mm. I think maybe he's written a book. I missed the beginning of it, but he he was talking about the influence of the Pike Place market on the rest of the country, and that markets had there had been many many markets. Hundreds of markets, of course, farmers' markets in the 19th century and early part of the 20th century. And then they had gone quite down, uh, you know, in favor of automats and things that people thought were wonderful, like supermarkets and fast food places. Well, um, he, he claims that the saving and preservation of the market here in Seattle lit a fire all over the country, and it was, and I'd never heard that before, and it was, he thought, very influential, and the number now of markets we know is all over, uh, it's all over Seattle. Mm-hmm. You know, so of, basically it proved hmm. that it could be done. Yes. When and all odds are against it, yes. it could be done. And I think that it, that it, it all of a sudden, he, he used the term, uh, it was a question of all of a sudden a big shift in values that was happening, and that he, just Richter and the market, Preservation of the market just touched that and it lit up like a wildfire all across the country. And the markets immediately went up, like over 700 immediately yeah. went to all over the country. And um, so it's, um, it, it wasn't just a one-time or, or in this place a one-person thing. And, and, of course, I think that it's also interesting, it came up earlier in our conversation, how that many of members of Allied Arts had traveled quite a bit. And Victor had studied markets in London. Uh, people knew about cafes in Paris and places like that in Italy. So I think there was a cosmopolitan quality to the members of Allied Arts at that time. But also the whole city was changing. The whole city was simply becoming more sophisticated. Everybody traveled more. They were less isolated than they used to be. I mean, there were people who traveled, I think, certainly in the earlier days, but they were mostly people who had a lot of money because it was expensive. Yeah, but let's not forget that part of that sophistication drove people to want to tear it down and redevelop it and put up the new steaming well, cool things of, right. of, of the yes. new urban life. Yes. And, yeah. that, and that was, so they were fighting against that at the same time. Right. You know, they had, so there's some, some successes with Pioneer Square, and we see Pioneer Square 
managed to live and is now seeing a new something, maybe a renaissance, we'll see. But some, some uh, battles with uh, the Metropolitan Tract that they, they couldn't save some buildings, saved others. Um, how, did, how do you think that, when you, when you wrote, reported on that, how do you think that battle, uh, you know, losing a couple of those buildings, uh, getting Rainier Tower, which is now going to be redone again. Yeah, right. Uh, how do you think that affected the people involved in L.A.? Well, I think it was a big struggle with the White Henry Stewart building. I mean, that was really preservationist against everybody else. It was not a distinguished building or a group of buildings, even though it was wonderfully, it was a wonderful building, but they couldn't, they couldn't get it together to save it. And I think it was also the beginning of historic preservation. You know, there's got to be a momentum, mm-hmm. a civic consciousness, and that and it has to penetrate the border regions, and they think they were not very sensitive. But when it came to the, they learned from the White Henry Stewart building that if they tried to destroy the Olympic Hotel, they'd be in trouble. You know, then they backed away from it quite quickly, I think. Well, I shouldn't say quickly. There was a huge effort against it. Yeah, I went yeah, for a while, didn't effort. I? And the Skinner building as well. That would have destroyed the Metropolitan Tract completely. And the Cobb building, too. Yeah, you look at that now and you think this is the part, these are the buildings that create sort of the core of the city and give yes. the city its character. Right. It's, an, it's a remarkable achievement. When, when, when you look now, what threads of, um, of allied arts do you still see running through the city? I mean, in terms of people's actions, people's powers, not necessarily the structures. Well, I've thought about that quite a bit, is that what, what is there now that uh, represents some of the energy of Allied Arts in the past? Um, it seems to me that, first of all, to back up, one of the things I think is that what was remarkable was that the group always was thinking of the whole city. It wasn't just thinking of one neighborhood. Um, and, I mean, it was the central area and, um, it, it, and downtown, of course, but the neighborhoods as well. And it wasn't just a one-topic organization either, one subject. Now, it seems to me that much of the what I see um, of citizen activism now tends to be focused either on a one-topic thing, the bicycle club, for example, um, or maybe one neighborhood. But I, uh, and that's where the energy is going, it seems to me, mainly. Partly because it's, probably it's just, there's a good reason for it. Uh, it's too much to do to take on all of that. Too big a city? Too big a city, too, we were probably naive, you know, and people are probably more sophisticated now. Um, and I think the bureaucracy is more, is more complicated now. Um, but also more, uh, more attuned to some of these values, yes? Yes, yes, that's true. That's true, but still getting through it is much harder. We uh, had dinner last night with Wes Sullivan, and um, he had, of course, lots of stories. And, but, and we talked about this topic, um, what's different now from then. And we all agreed that one of the things was that a mayor, for example, was much more accessible. He'd call him on the phone, and he'd say, well, come over and let's talk about this, you know, immediately. Um, I don't think you get that kind of... I haven't tried to talk to Ed Murray, but I don't think you get that kind of no, quick you, response. Yeah, right. um, yeah, I think there were... Uh, then it was much easier. Everything got done more easily. Deals were made more easily. Not that anything was terrible being done, but everything was easier. And I think maybe in part because the city was smaller. I'm sure that's part of it. It's also possible that all those people in those early days, there was a sense of naivety about them, that they could do things. Whereas I don't think anyone's naive about anything now. They're just, all they see are the problems. You know, I, uh, 
you hired a journalist to write this, and if I'm not mistaken, you wrote about that at, in the foreword about uh, we wanted to have a journalist tell the story, warts and all. So uh, what warts did you discover? <laughs> Go ahead, Richard. Forgive me, Mary. Whenever I came up with a wart and Mary read the copy, she'd say, well, do you really have to say no, that? No, I, 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 I stood by all of them. There were, actually, I didn't find that many warts anywhere. I'm sure there were lots of them. Uh, but they certainly weren't in the, in the record uh, of the warts. I think, you know, I talked about mistakes that Allied Arts made as an organization. One was the 100-foot level of the Space Needle. That was because Victor was opposed to it, and everybody was going to do what Victor wanted. But it was, they made such a fuss when I think then nobody cared, and nobody cares today because, and I thought about this because I was there once. I think I was waiting to go up to the restaurant. I happened to look, and I realized that when you look at it, you look at the top. You don't look at the bottom. And I took a look at all those postcards. Not one of them shows that little, and I think it doesn't make very much money. I designate, so it's kind of it was a non-point then, and I think it's a moot point now. That was one thing that uh, I think Allied Arts made a mistake with, probably the... Um, the commons, to me, were com really... Well, oh, really not moving... Oh, I think you wrote the not moving quick enough to get in, uh, a definitive position on Westlake Mall yes. as well. Yes. yes, I'd agree with that, absolutely. That and also the commons. They never really came up with anything on the commons that was definitive. They waffled. They waffled terribly. Yeah. They still, at the end, they were divided. And I think they could have played a crucial role in developing the commons. They, there was no really strong public advocate for the commons. I think it's one of the great shame things of the city, really, because we lost an enormous yeah. opportunity for something beautiful. Oh, well, you just said something that sort of gets, wraps this up for me. Okay. You, you talked about it, that, that you, there was no one voice, no, no, nobody looking overarching on the city. So public advocate for the city today, what do we need or who do we turn to? Because even if a city's big, there still needs to be somebody who, of course. who wants to sustain the whole city, see it as a whole. I'm kind of puzzled about that. I don't really see, I maybe, um, I probably don't keep up as much, really, uh, but uh, I do read the, the local papers, and uh, I don't see anyone who's, who I would, could point to quite in the same way. You know? Or any organization. Or any organization. I mean, the organizations, I think, are lively and good, and, uh, but there are organizations that have also been, that have faded somewhat, and uh, uh, are still around, maybe, but uh, Municipal League, uh, we talking no. about that last night, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's uh, League of Women Voters, I don't know how But they're not they all focused are, on, they don't come no. from an aesthetic no, and, they don't. and no. social, no. Uh, no, they the don't. social well-being no. of a city. No. no. You know, you, you, there was, I'll, I'll end with this, this was my favorite thing that I think I would like to uh, revitalize, let's do this somehow. You had a contest the Elliot Arts had a contest, the street I'm most ashamed of. And which was the one that uh, won? Spokane Street? Spokane Street, yeah. It's still pretty ugly. Uh, yeah, I always, I mean, that's the thing that Elliot Arts liked to do. I mean, they were kind of one-shot deals. Uh, you know, they sponsored a lot of things that lasted for a season or two, but they added to the fabric of the city. Uh, and so, uh, but that, that doesn't happen. Now. Everything's too expensive to get going. All right, well, I think with social media, we should at least do that. Okay, so we'll do I that. think for, part, for when, we, when we post this, Good. we're going to ask people to send in the street they're most ashamed of. And no, Aurora doesn't do count. Aurora I, doesn't count. No, Aurora doesn't count. It's beyond. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I really thought this was, I really enjoyed reading this book, and well, I really you. think that, that it 
puts in context a lot of the things we see around us and take, take for granted. So that really does, in, in talking about these individual battles, you really get a, a sense of the history of the city, and I think it's great. Good. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Stirring up Seattle, allied arts in the civic landscape, R.M. Campbell, Mary Coney. This is In Residence. I'm Steve Shear. R.M. Campbell and Mary Coney will be on stage Monday, November 10th at Town Hall, along with David Brewster and former Seattle Mayor Wes Ullman talking about stirring up Seattle, allied arts in the civic landscape. I'm Steve Scher, the Scholar-in-Residence at Town Hall this fall 2014 season. You can find our podcast on iTunes as well as on Stitcher. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again.